Matthew 21, beginning on verse 33, and we'll read to verse 46. And when you're there, I'll ask you that you rise for the reading of God's word. Matthew 21, beginning on verse 33. Now this is the word of the Lord. Hear another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When, therefore... The owner of the vineyard comes. What will he do to those tenants? They said to him, He will put those wretched to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing. And it is marvelous in your eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on the stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard this parable, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, They feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Our praise team has a special song to bless our congregation with. So we ask that as we continue in our worship, that we participate with hearts and ears and reflect on God's goodness. Uh, Would you join me in prayer at this time? Uh, Father, we are uh, speechless uh, at who you are and what you have done as we reflect upon this season and all that it means. Father, our only response is worship, is adoration, it's praise. And so this morning, Lord, as we once again turn to your word, we ask, Lord, that your word would inform our worship, that your word would transform the way we view this world, and ourselves, and that you would, by your Spirit, continue to speak unto us a people who are desperately in need of your word. So we give you thanks. We praise you for your good. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, The first Christmas, according to Luke 2, uh, takes place during a census. Uh, During this time, everyone in the Roman Empire Uh, was ordered to go back to their hometown to be registered. So you can imagine hundreds of thousands of people on the road, 
fighting for every inch on the road, trying to move in front of other people. All the rooms are booked, the restaurants are packed, and the only thing that people are preoccupied with is getting to their destination. Yes, the first Christmas felt more like Thanksgiving. It was in this environment, in an environment where the people are busy, distracted, tired from traveling, a singularly focused just on their own plans, that the king of the universe comes to this world. You know, strangely, it seems that this is reenacted every year during the Christmas season. It seems every year during this time, the world is busy, the world is distracted and tired, focused solely on their own plans. And so in hopes of reversing that, I want to spend this morning reflecting upon the coming of Jesus as we find it in Matthew 21. And I want to ask just three questions. First, how did Jesus come? Second, why did he come? And third, what is our response to all this? So first, how did Jesus come? You know, today's passage tells us the story of Jesus' coming through a parable. Now, the parable likens God to the master of a house who planted a vineyard and leased it out to tenants. Now, when it was finally time for the master to enjoy the fruits of his own harvest, he sent his servants. But when the servants were sent, the tenants, upon finding them, they beat one, they killed the other, and they stoned the third. Now, upon hearing this, the master of the house, he doesn't send an army to destroy them, and he doesn't send a lawyer to draw up charges against them. Instead, he sends his son, thinking, when they see my son, they will respect him. But upon the son's arrival, or upon hearing that the son is going to come, here is how the tenants reply. This is in verse 38. They say this, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him. And have his inheritance. And so the passage tells us that when the son of this master arrives, the tenants, they throw him outside the vineyard and they kill him. They kill him. You know, when it comes to Christmas and the incarnation of Jesus, a common theme that's often talked about is the theme of humility. Jesus comes in humility by taking on flesh. God becoming man. Jesus comes in humility by becoming a baby. He becomes a dependent little soul. But the coming of Jesus, I'll have you know, goes beyond humility. It goes beyond humility to the theme of rejection. You know, if you think about Jesus' story, right, even before Jesus was born, he was rejected by his earthly father, Joseph. And he was going to be abandoned by him if it wasn't for angels appearing, angels intervening. See, if it wasn't for the angels intervening, Jesus would have grown up as a child of a single parent, rejected by his own earthly father. All throughout Jesus' ministry, he's rejected He's rejected by his own family. He's rejected by his own people. He's rejected by his disciples. He's rejected by his own friends. And he's condemned as a criminal that's worthy of capital punishment. See, this parable concisely tells us 
that when Jesus came to the world that belonged to him, Jesus was utterly rejected. You know, rejection is one of the hardest realities to process and accept. Rejection is painful uh, because it's deeply personal. And rejection is even more hurtful when it's unwarranted. Getting rejected by Harvard University, sure, okay. You've got to try at least, right? That's maybe something we all have in common, right? Uh, getting rejected by Harvard. But getting rejected because of the color of your skin, getting rejected, rejected because of how you look, getting rejected because of your social economic status, getting rejected because of your height, your weight, getting rejected because you're you. That's deeply hurtful. See, this is the reason why we don't want to go anywhere or be near anyone who is going to reject us. Right? Imagine showing up to a gathering, and the first question you get asked is, what are you doing here? See, this is why we only go to places where we're invited. We go to places where we're welcomed. We go places where people are happy that we're there. But if you think about the coming of Jesus, the paradigm really changes when you realize that Jesus knew he was going to be rejected, yet he still came. See, Jesus knew that being rejected was part of his mission. Unwarranted, unjustified rejection by the world that he created, by the people closest to him, even his own earthly father, even his closest disciples were to reject Jesus. See, Jesus came not just in humility, but he came in rejection. And there's a passage in Isaiah 53 that's often associated with Good Friday. But this passage has much to do with Christmas as it does with Easter and Good Friday. And this is what Isaiah 53 says, verses 2 to 3, as it describes the coming of Jesus and how he grew up. It says this, For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form of majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. He talks about Jesus' coming and how he was received. As one who was rejected, one who was despised, it describes Jesus as a man of sorrows who was acquainted with grief. People hid their faces from Jesus. They turned away from him. Now, as we think about Jesus, Christmas, the coming of Christ, he came not just in humility, in a low, low form, but he came in rejection. The second question, why did he come then? Jesus explains this in verse 32, uh, 42. He says this, The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in his eyes. If you read this verse in your Bibles, there's a little footnote there, 
and that's, and that's indicating that this verse is actually from another place in the Bible. It's from Psalm 118. Now, if you go to Psalm 118, that psalm is actually a psalm about Israel's hope amidst the rejection and the scorn that they were facing from the nations. So this statement, the stone that the builders had rejected, has now become the cornerstone. This statement actually represented for Israel a promise of reversal. So it goes like this. While Israel is being mocked and rejected... God was going to reverse their shame and turn it into glory. God was going to reverse the scorn and turn that into admiration and respect. God was going to reverse the rejection and turn it into acceptance. See, this Psalm 118 promised that God was going to take all the pain and the suffering that God's people had endured and faced, and He was going to, through that, bring about redemption and renewal. Now think about that. See, Jesus knew exactly what this verse was about. He knew what Psalm 118 was. He knew how important it was for the Israelites. And as he comes, he quotes this verse. Why? By quoting this verse, Jesus was identifying with his people. See, Jesus, by quoting this verse, he's saying, you know, you as a people, you as individuals, the rejection and the scorn that you faced, I am going to carry that. I am going to bear that in my flesh. The reversal of your rejection is my rejection. In other words, Jesus is simply saying, I'm going to take your place. This promise This promise of reversal where rejection turns into acceptance, Jesus is saying, that is going to come about because I am going to now take your place. See, friends, the message of the gospel is that we are forgiven because Jesus was forsaken on our behalf. We are accepted because Jesus was rejected. We have life because Jesus died. And he rose again. See, why did Jesus come? Why did he come even though he knew that he was going to be rejected? He came because for the purpose of carrying our sins, taking on our shame, and identifying with us in our rejection. If you go to Matthew 1, um, it records the genealogy of Jesus. It talks about his family and his lineage And in this genealogy, Matthew identifies four women, the mothers of Jesus, Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Bathsheba. You know, these four women, if you look at their history, if you read their stories, uh, these are women um, who were used and abused, used and abused sexually by individuals, by powerful men, by society. These four women were women who were ultimately rejected. See, this is the point that Matthew is trying to make as he records Jesus' genealogy in this way. He's saying, you know what, Jesus just didn't drop down from heaven with a pristine background and a flawless heritage. No, the gospel writer tells us that Jesus, he comes from a line of people who experience brokenness 
a line from a people who knew rejection. And so, as we think about Christmas, as we think about the coming of Jesus, this, this makes sense, right? Because your past, the rejection that you have endured, your past is actually the past that Jesus came from and the past that Jesus came for. See, he identifies with the brokenness and the rejection that we have faced. And he says, I will take that on. I will take your place, and I will bring about reversal, redemption, healing, and renewal. This is why the next verse of Isaiah 53 says this, verse 4, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. You know, as many of you know, um, you know, I grew up in the projects of Brooklyn in a rough neighborhood, and I was one of the very few uh, non-African American kids. And growing up in that neighborhood, there was a really interesting dynamic because I was living in a community that was largely rejected by society. But within that community, I was rejected because I was a minority. So I was a minority among minorities. And, you know, often I had to wrestle with this issue of self-worth because I felt rejected by a community that was rejected by society. That meant, or I thought that meant, I was rejected by everyone. You know, I'll be the first to admit, you know, rejection is life-altering. It really changes who you are and how you live. And there are two responses to rejection that we normally see. If you face rejection, if you experience rejection, either you lean into it even more and you use that as a reason to isolate yourself from other people. If you've endured rejection, you say, you know what, the world has rejected me, and you lean into it even more. It shapes your identity and it shapes the way in which you view other people. You start to see people through that prism, that everything is about rejection. And so you lean into it even more. You isolate yourself The second response is you change. It morphs you. And you start to have this obsession of wanting to be accepted by others. And you start to change who you are. You know, for me, it was the latter. After being rejected, I sought acceptance and I changed who I was. I started to to seek acceptance. I was obsessed with being accepted by this community, by changing the way I acted, changing the way I talked, trying to gain skills in certain things, and even doing regrettable acts because I wanted to be accepted. But the gospel offers a third way. It offers a third way, and that's to find complete healing and redemption in the one who was rejected on your behalf. See, we all carry around with us the wounds of rejection from the past. But the gospel offers healing to turn those wounds into scars of glory and redemption. Scars that point towards the work of Christ. Why did Jesus come? 
He came to take our place, to identify with us. He came to take our place, experiencing rejection. So the third question is, what should be our response? This is what it says in verse 2137. This is um, God's, uh, or the master of the vineyard. This is what he says. He says, they will respect my son. See, when the master realizes, you know what, the tenants are behaving badly, he says, I'm going to send my son, and they will respect him at least. Now, I want to make sure there's no confusion with what's going on here, because often this word respect uh, gets thrown around easily and is often misunderstood. Now, the proper sense of respect is to show deference. The proper sense of respect is to show regard, not because the person demands it, but because the person deserves it. You see, there's a difference. Respect is showing deference to someone because they deserve it, not because they demand it. See, you and I, we walk around expecting people to respect us, demanding respect, but that's not real respect. Real respect is when you are deserving of it. And if there's anything that the Bible tells us is that we as sinful creatures, we don't deserve deference. We demand it, sure, but there's nothing intrinsic in us that is deserving of respect. But when God says, they will respect my son, this is the expectation that when they see my son, they will respect him The best word used to describe this or to understand respect is simply this. They will recognize who he is. When God sends his son, he sends his son with the expectation. They will recognize him. They will see him for who he is. The special status that he deserves. They will see that he is the son of the master. Friends, when we are called this morning to respect the Son, it's not about ascribing exaggerated esteem. We're not supposed to be fawning over baby Jesus, trying to curry up favor, like, oh my goodness, baby Jesus is so cute. Don't we say that to every baby? He's so cute. We're not fawning over baby Jesus. We're not bootlicking Jesus, trying to prop up a God with a weak ego. No. We are simply recognizing Jesus. We are recognizing him for who he is, as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. See, this is what the tenants missed. See, the tenants have become more and more delusional, thinking that they are entitled to the vineyard fruit. The tenants think that everything that they see belongs to them, and anything that threatens what they have claimed to be theirs They respond with disproportionate violence. They say, this is mine. This doesn't belong to the master. This is mine. And anything that threatens that entitlement, how do they respond? Progressively, worse and worse, with violence. Do you know the question that Jesus has asked the most throughout his earthly ministry? Do you know the one question that people keep asking Jesus? They ask him, who are you? That's the question that's asked over and over again. Who are you, Jesus? Who are you? And depending on how we answer that question will determine 
the respect we give him. Who is Jesus? He's a baby born in a manger? I mean, that deserves some respect, right? At least for me, I was born in a hospital. He was born in a manger. Some respect there. Who is Jesus? He's the son of a carpenter? Does that deserve respect? Ah, it depends. You've got to see his work, right? How good is, uh, is his craft? Who is Jesus? He's a miracle worker, a teacher? Sure, some respect. But who is Jesus? Who is he? He's the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He's the Savior of this world who came in love and humility, becoming like us in every way, taking on our sin, our shame, our scorn, and our rejection. So how should we respond to this man, to this God who is the King of kings and the Lord of lords? What should be our response? None other than recognition for who he is. Our response is none other than worship. Our response should be none other this Christmas to kneel before this king and to proclaim, you are Lord, you are Savior. You are the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Friends, this message found in Matthew 21 isn't just a message about Jesus' first coming. It's not just a message about the original Christmas, and it's not just a message about how we ought to observe Christmas every year. But this message in parable is also about Jesus' second coming. See, you and I, we can sit here as observers of this passage. We can fault the wicked tenants for failing to give respect to Jesus. We can look upon these tenants and call them foolish for thinking that they are masters of their own world. But this decision awaits each and every one of us today. Friends, when Jesus returns, when he returns as the son of the master, when he returns as Lord of lords and king of kings, will you recognize him for who he is? Or will you be so busy in your own life, in your own plans, will you be caught in this lie, thinking that the world is yours. Everything you have belongs to you. The world is your oyster. Will you be in a state of entitlement, thinking all of this is mine? How dare you come and disturb it? How will you respond? And how are you responding now? Friends, do we really, as believers, have an attitude of stewardship? knowing that everything we have is actually from the Lord. If you look at the passage, it says, the Lord dug it, he planted, he built it. The Lord did everything. The master did all of it. It all belongs to him. And we are called to be tenants. See, as we, in this similar situation, as we await his return, do we consider his return to be a threat an interruption to our life and the plans that we have set up. Friends, Christmas is not just about observance, but it's about expectation. 
See, Christmas isn't just about observing a holiday that took place, something that took place in the past that we recreate and reenact every year to try to get into some sort of spirit. No, Christmas is not just observance, but it's about expectations. It's looking forward to his second coming. It's looking forward to when this king will return again. And so as we await Christmas, as we celebrate Christmas, This morning, will you worship him as king? Will you acknowledge him for who he is? And will you give him the respect, not that he demands, but the respect he deserves? Would you join me in prayer at this time?